Two and a Half Admins, episode 157. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. The internet is not forever after all. CNET deletes old articles to game Google. This really hit home with you, Jim, didn't it? Because although you've never written for CNET before, you have written for quite a few places, and that archive deserves to uh, live forever. You know, honestly, Joe, I don't know if this does hit me any harder than it does anybody else. I mean, yeah, it's it's easy to draw that parallel there, but it kind of screws everybody. I'm a little sympathetic to CNET's stated aims that like, you know, oh, well, we need to get our page rank up. And if we prune our old content, we look more focused and fresh. And, you know, maybe that'll get us more Google juice. It doesn't really work that way for everything, but... But if you're looking for more Google juice on a specific topic and you prune things away from your site that aren't relevant to that topic, it can boost your page rank a little bit. But I mean, this is a mugs game. And more to the point, it bothers me that they just deleted it all. They could have accomplished the same goal by setting up a subdomain, archive.cnet.com, and just migrating older articles over to that. That would have accomplished the same goal. Or even cnetarchive.com or something if they wanted a completely different domain. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I suppose it's also fair to point out that, you know, well, what's in it for them? Because they're a for-profit corporation, right? They want to make money. And I think as much of it may also have come down to deciding that although well-written articles do have long tails and enough of them will get you a significant boost on top of your fresh content, which is where the majority of your traffic comes from, there comes a point where you know, you're probably not making more money on that long tail than you're spending on the infrastructure to keep all of your data online for a very long period. I would have been happier with this if that was what CNET had said. Just literally something on, along the lines of this is very old content. It's not particularly relevant anymore. And we aren't archive.org. Yeah, we want the DB to be a little bit smaller. Well, in particular, like I've definitely seen sites that do have an archive have to put a big warning on it. It's like, this content is from the late 90s. It's not going to render quite properly, no matter what we do. And you're not going to be able to read it on your phone nicely. Sorry. (laughs) And just trying to keep that content looking reasonable within the design of your site as your site evolves over decades can be a real challenge. And I understand at some point you're like, this old content is just not worth having anymore. But to Jim's point, Admitting that and and saying that's the reason not, we're deleting it because we think it'll help our Google foo. When Google's like, no, it won't. And trying to game Google's algorithm, that is such a mugs game. I have told so many people over the years who have come to me and asked, you know, what weird tricks do I do to rocket my page rank, you know, up Google? And I tell them, you just make relevant content and you organize it reasonably well and you make it the highest quality you can and you put it out there and, you know, it will happen. Whereas if you start trying to actually game the algorithm, the algorithm tends to game you right the hell back. Well, there are some basic things you can do though, right? Like having the right headers and HTML tags and whatnot and, you know, basic stuff. But yeah, when you're getting into the the real gaming it like this, oh, let's delete a bunch of stuff. That just seems like you're on a hiding to nothing, really. Well, again, you're you're really running a genuine risk because a lot of those people I've talked to over the years who have come to me for SEO advice, and you know, I'm, I'm I've never claimed to be an SEO expert, but my advice has always been be very careful with that. You know, your best option is just to create quality content and publish it regularly, and let the algorithm figure it out. You will get to the top of the results if you do that, and 
I say that as someone named Jim Salter who beat daily syndicated AP reporter Jim Salter for, you know, the the top of the Google results for our common name. And I managed that before I was myself writing articles daily and having them published, which tells you a lot about the way the algorithm actually does work. It's not because I did like silly little tricks. It's because I wrote content that people valued and kept coming back to and kept linking And that got me to the top of the results. And that is the best way to do it. Meanwhile, a lot of those folks I talked to who I advised that went out and found somebody who would do what they wanted to do in the the beginning and just say, oh, well, you know, we'll do all these weird things and that'll just totally rocket you up the algorithm. And in some cases, it did nothing. In other cases, it got them, you know, three or four more spots up whatever page they were on of whatever search query they were looking to game their results for. But they also tended to drop entire pages in PageRank within three or four months from then, because Google's engineers are constantly looking for evidence of people gaming the algorithm in ways they don't like and figuring out ways to actively penalize it, not just nerf it, penalize it. Yeah, at least CNET did do the right thing here. Uh, They say they've maintained a local copy of all the content and took steps to send each of the articles to the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine before pulling them down. So at least it's not going to contribute to the link rot problem. Yeah, but then that is kind of just outsourcing it to poor old archive.org who are having a bit of a bad time with various lawsuits and stuff. You just brought up something that I was waiting for my turn to get to, which is this is evidence that, you know, archive.org's mission is very important and we should support it. And by we, I mean pretty much everybody. I mean large companies. I mean individual people. Mm. Ideally, archive.org would honestly be run as like an infrastructure government service, in my opinion. I'm not not saying as in like, oh, privatize archive.org, just this is something that we as a society should be doing and making sure is done. We have something like that for print material, right? The Library of Congress is like, we get one copy of every book that's ever published. Exactly. It's like, maybe we should apply the same thing as a public service to the internet, or at least try to convince the internet archive to separate their activities beyond being the archive that are drawing all the the flag at them at this time. Mm. But say you put like 20 cents, 50 cents on every domain renewal, and that went to supporting the Internet Archive. I'd be happy with that. I mean, I'd be okay with it, but 20 cents per domain renewal is not going to add up to enough, I don't think. You don't think? No. No. There are not that many domains. No, there, there really aren't. 20 cents per domain renewal is just not going to scale very far. Particularly given that a lot of the domain activity, the churn, is is not people actually buying domains anyway. It's jackass marketers, you know, tasting domains. They theoretically buy the domain, but then they return it 30 days later if they didn't get the marketing results they wanted from it and get their money back. So unless that money they get back does not include a fee that goes off to archive.org, it ain't going to help archive.org. Well, I think they should be fined $5 for shithousery. And that should go to the Internet Archive. I wouldn't mind that. But if you as a company are just going to dump stuff on archive.org and not host it yourself, then you really ought to at least donate something. Yes, but I think as we've seen in almost all the cases, the reason why the company is dumping stuff is because they can't afford to keep hosting it. And so it's just always going to be asking the 
wrong people at the wrong time. Right. Or they just don't want to afford hosting it anymore. But Mm -hmm. the point is they want to be done with the responsibility for it. Mm -hmm. And the alternative is not, oh, they have to keep hosting everything they've ever been, you know, put on the internet forever. The alternative is it just gets deleted forever. So that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense in my opinion. It still just, it, it makes more sense to say, hey, much like, and that was a, that was an excellent point, much like the Library of Congress, you know, we should have infrastructure that our entire society supports as a vital part of what we're doing with life, you know, that, that is an archival service for, for internet resources. If you want that as a thing, you really can't tie it to companies who no longer want data up because they don't want the data up. Why would they pay for somebody else to have it up? But this does bring up the broader point that the internet is not forever after all, as the headline says. Yeah. The article mentions a Harvard University study from 2021 that looked through 550,000 New York Times articles from 1996 to 2019 and found that about 25% of the external links were no longer accessible. I mean, do you still have a Facebook account? Just look at your own Facebook memories. I'm an old fart. I look at my damn memories every day and, you know, look at stuff that I've posted on that day in history for the last decade or whatever. It's kind of fun when you have kids, right? But, you know, you get all your old memes and stuff and, uh, you know, news stories. And it is amazing how much of that stuff just disappears from, I mean, as soon as like two or three years back. People delete things. And if you linked it without making a copy of it yourself and self-hosting it yourself, well, it's gone when they delete it. And people delete things a lot. This whole idea of the internet is forever, that was never more than a meme itself. That has never been even faintly true. It's a tongue-in-cheek reference to the fact that if you deeply want something gone, it's very difficult to ensure it will be gone and stay gone. And that's partly a function of, well, you know, it's it's on a computer, therefore it's digital data and it can just be freaking copied. So it's it's hard to kill it. And it's also a function of the internet has tremendously increased the amount of interconnectivity in society. The odds that somebody who can and will archive the thing that you would like to forget will come across it are very, very high. But, you know, if you're CNET and you've got a 20-year-old article reviewing a motherboard from 1990, or not 1990, that's 30 years, but you get the idea. You know, you, you got a review of a motherboard from 2002 or whatever, and like, you're done with that. Well, what are the odds that somebody like saved that and is just itching to put it right back online the second you delete it? Probably pretty low. It's why I try and link to reputable sources that I feel like will be around for a while because I don't want the old show notes to be full of dead links. And I've just gone back to the first couple of episodes we did and every link is still live, which is nice. But at some point, The Verge will probably go away Ars Technica might even go away, even though that's been 25 years and counting. And eventually, all the old links will just be dead. It's time for me to say it again. It feels like it's every episode on a long enough time scale. Everything goes away. Nothing is permanent. (laughs) Yeah, we've had these kind of similar discussions for the FreeBSD source tree. We have all the commit history going back to the early 90s, but lots of those commit messages make references to other trees and just links, you know, here's a link to the paper that inspired this code or whatever. And as those go away, that kind of history is missing. And so how do we keep that history along with copies of all the external references that it makes? 
The only way to do it, if, if you're serious about it, and I've, I've done this for a lot of content and a lot of things that I have done in the past, not everything, obviously, but um, you both link and you make a local copy. The purpose of the link is to establish the validity of the local copy that you made. And what happens then is you lose the validation when the link goes dead to a large degree, not entirely, because then if you Google that link, you'll find other people who linked to that thing. And that is strong evidence, at least that, you know, yes, this is something legitimate and whatever, but ultimately that's what you have to do. If you really want to be certain that the data that you want people to see will be available, you have to self-host it yourself. And ideally, you also provide a link to the original source. So while it's online, at least, people can see that you haven't monkeyed with it. Okay, this episode is sponsored by people who support us with PayPal and Patreon. Go to 2.5admins.com support for details of how you can support us too. Two and a half admins is part of the late night Linux family, which means that for $10 a month on Patreon, you get access to an RSS feed that contains all the late night Linux family shows without adverts like this. There's also an option to get just this show ad free for $5 a month if you prefer. Some of the episodes are even released a day or so early for Patreon supporters. The ad market isn't great at the moment. And frankly, it's hard to find sponsors that don't want to do tracking bullshit. But so far, we've managed to resist that. So, if you like what we do and can afford it, it would be great if you could support us. So go to 2.5admins.com support and help us keep this show going for as long as we possibly can. That's 2.5admins.com support. Coughlin says, SSDs will not kill disk drives. So, I think it was pure storage. Yep. I've been trying to spread this meme that SSDs are going to replace hard disk drives. Specifically by 2028. Which is just ludicrous. Yes, agreed. Which is only something a company who sells only Flash would say. Yeah. Are you accusing them of having an ulterior motive and acting on it, Alan? Why? (laughs) I'm saying I'm going to buy some hard drives in 2028 despite them. So this is all based off Pure's belief that flash drives, especially the new high-capacity QLC, the four bits per cell, will reduce the total cost of ownership of all flash storage, and so people won't want to buy hard drives. It's like, well, it turns out there are other reasons to want hard drives, not just because they have larger capacity than SSDs. It's not the larger capacity, it's the lower cost per terabyte. And that lower cost per terabyte seems vanishingly unlikely to go away anytime soon. Yeah, but in a data center setting where space is at a real premium, if you look at Samsung's new 256 terabyte SSD, which is going to take up roughly the same space as a hard disk, which will maybe get to like 50 terabytes at some point soon in the next couple of years, then maybe it kind of makes more sense to go the SSD route. Maybe. It depends on the price point. It depends on you know the right endurance issues that you may or may not have with that particular workload in that particular data center. There's just a lot going on there. And hard drive technology as it is right now, you know, mechanical hard drives with rotating platters and, you know, heads that move across a platter. Yeah, that that technology is not going to be with us forever. Something will supplant it. It doesn't seem likely that's going to be NAND flash. I strongly suspect by the time we have a solid state technology that completely displaces hard drives, It's going to be something better than NAND flash, QLC or no. We're already bumping up on the limits of what you can really do with NAND flash. QLC is already, every time you go up the number of bits that you store per cell, 
you negatively impact both performance and write endurance significantly to the point that many QLC SSDs can, in many cases, be slower than mechanical hard drives in a lot of workloads. And it gets even worse when you take the next step down to PLC, you know, the, the five-level cell flash. I think it's absolutely accurate to say that mechanical hard drives are enough of a Rube Goldberg that at some point, something is going to kick them just completely off their throne. But it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's not going to happen by 2028. And in my opinion, I don't think it's going to be NAND. I think it's going to be something we haven't seen yet. Yeah, because... Specifically with NAND, there's issues about longevity, not just write endurance, but you know, if you have the data just sitting there for too long, does it stop working? Where that's much less of a case in hard drives. And yeah, the cost per terabyte is still more than double. And while it keeps shrinking, the hard drives will get cheaper too. At some point, <laughs> the hard drive manufacturers will just have to lessen their margins to keep it cheaper, but they will. And so Coughlin's projections show that by 2028, we'll actually see even more sales of hard drives than we have now. Although we will also see a tripling of, of the amount of SSDs that are being sold. But even tape, you know, we've heard tape is dead how many times and it's still kicking and it's not going to go away for a long time. It's probably also worth mentioning that these really enormous SSDs, in some ways, they're, they're not exactly really just an enormous SSD. They're, they're in some ways similar to an array of SSDs, which already an individual SSD is an array of flash media. You know, you've, you've basically got a RAID array in a box, even with just a standard little consumer SSD. You just never see the details because they're hidden from you in firmware. And there is a very common misconception that SSDs will save you a ton of power over mechanical hard drives. And that is not the case. An idle SSD consumes a bit less power than an idle mechanical hard drive, but once you're actually moving data to or from either one, the advantage disappears. And Samsung's own press release on these 256 terabyte SSDs claims that, and I'm quoting here, the 256 terabyte SSD consumed seven times less power than a stack of eight 32 terabyte SSDs. Reminder, eight by 32 equals 256. In other words, the power requirements scaled up with the really large SSD. So what you're really saying is that this 256 terabyte SSD now consumes significantly more power than a large mechanical hard drive. Now, at this point, it does have the capacity going for it. So you could say, well, yeah, sure, it consumes more than a hard drive, but you'd need several hard drives to get that much capacity. And all that makes sense, and it absolutely has a point. But again, the mechanical hard drives keep scaling up in capacity also. I don't know that 50 terabytes is high enough for what we'll have available in 2028. It may go farther than that. Yeah, like we're expecting the 30 terabyte ones within the next year and the 50 terabytes just the next step, not the limit that we expect to see by 2028. One interesting thing that their projections do show is the change in two and a half inch hard drives, specifically looking at the 10 and 15,000 RPM server type stuff, but also obviously the two and a half inch laptop spinning hard drives, like 5,400 RPM low end hard drives for laptops. 10 years ago, you were seeing about 50% of the market, like 250 million drives shipped as two and a half inch. Looking at this year, they're expecting maybe 40 million, and it's going to continue to going down. Uh, and for their projection by 2028 is that that's down to maybe 14 million. 
in my opinion, those 2.5 inch data center drives always had a pretty tenuous grasp on life because they were clawing down some relatively small advantages with some relatively high costs. You were never able to get the same data density in a 2.5 inch form factor as the larger 3.5 inch. So in return for the smaller form factor, the big thing that you were getting really was because you had smaller platters, you tended to have somewhat lower latency with really high RPM you know, motors spinning the platters than you would get out of a 3.5 inch drive, even with the same high RPM motor. And when you were limited to conventional hard drives, latency was the biggest problem you had. So even though you had to get worse data density and higher prices and, you know, these ridiculous 10 and 15,000 RPM, you know, motors spinning these things, it seemed worth it in order to get, and I really want to stress a little bit of latency advantage out of your drive. But once SSDs hit the market, I mean, the minute, in my opinion, even just like the old Intel X25 80 gigabyte SSDs hit the market, the 2.5 inch mechanical drives, they really just needed to go ahead and die immediately because they were just done. Because again, even those very, very old Intel SSDs, they just absolutely murdered anything mechanical in terms of latency and access times. So the one real advantage that sold those 2.5 inch data center drives was done. And for consumer equipment, well, you know, again, you, know, you wanted the 2.5 inch for laptops literally just because at this point, literally just because they were smaller. And so when the SSDs were the same form factor and immensely faster and, you know, didn't have issues with heads crashing into platters, you know, if you just drop your laptop on your desk or, you know, the issues with thermal expansion contraction, if you like to leave your laptop in the trunk of your car and, you know, go from a 20 degree Fahrenheit, you know, winter parking lot to, you know, your 74 Fahrenheit office building or whatever. All those issues went away when the SSDs became available. And it took the industry many years to actually adapt to that and actually really start taking SSDs seriously and deploying them as widely as it should have. But we've gotten to that point now. And if you can come up with a genuine use for 2.5-inch mechanical hard drive that isn't served better by an SSD, let me know because I haven't been able to figure out what the hell that is in 10 years. Yeah, and you could tell... Well, that happened because the industry adapted very quickly. Like the vendors, suddenly they didn't sell two and a half inch hard drives anymore. Like trying to buy 10 and 15,000 RPM drives, even just spares for existingly deployed systems, they were becoming unobtainium. And it's because the manufacturers, like, we don't want to build any more of these than we definitely know we can sell because we know the market for them is completely drying up. So we don't want to be stuck with any inventory. And so the fact that they're continuing to make hard drives because they know they're going to continue to sell them. If Western Digital and Seagate thought hard drives were really dying off, they would basically accelerate that trend by cutting off production because they don't want to get stuck holding warehouses full of hard drives that nobody wants to buy. So what you're saying is Mark Twain nailed it when he said reports of the death of hard drives are greatly exaggerated. Indeed. I believe that was Abraham Lincoln, but yes. <laughs> Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. It really means a lot to us. Russ Linus says, have you seen any BMC or IPMI for Raspberry Pi and or Orange Pi and so on? The idea is to have something to cheaply try out things like bare metal deployments of OpenStack and OpenShift and so on. So this is kind of an interesting one. The first answer is absolutely not. Nobody's putting anything like BMC or IPMI in a Raspberry Pi or even to the best of my knowledge, the slightly more, you know, upscale 
like ARM dev board type systems. They're generally very much intended to be low cost and they're not aimed at environments that require features like that. However, there is such a thing as a KVM over IP. If you know what KVM means, it's short for keyboard video mouse. It's a switch that you can plug one keyboard, one mouse, and one or two monitors into, and lots of different computers. Then you press a button on the switch that changes which computer actually gets the use of the monitor, mouse, and keyboard. Now, a KVM over IP switch is something that you plug in your computer to, and rather than plugging in a monitor, mouse, and keyboard locally, what you actually do is you access the KVM switch across the internet, and that gives your own computers, keyboard, mouse, monitor, etc. Everything just pops up on the remote computer, no matter what condition it's in, because you're literally tapping its video output and, you know, it's, it's mouse and keyboard. So you can reconfigure its BIOS, you can do whatever you need to do, even on systems that don't have native BMC or IPMI support. Now, traditionally, KVM switches have been far too expensive for a project like this. However, hilariously, the best answer here is probably buy yourself an extra Raspberry Pi. There's a site you can go to called pikvm.org that will walk you through making an open source and inexpensive do-it-yourself KVM over IP using, you guessed it, your Raspberry Pi. So what you do here is you set up one Raspberry Pi as your do-it-yourself Pi KVM switch, and you connect it to the Pi that you want to have BMC or IPMI-like access to. And since individual Pies are so cheap, that might actually be worth doing for you. Yeah, the closest other thing I've seen is basically a device that pretends to be the SD card. So it has an SD card-like interface and then more in like an Ethernet connection and allows you to have multiple images you can switch between so that basically you can reboot the Pi and alternate what operating system or files is, is reading off the SD card. We looked at something like that in FreeBSD to do CI testing on things like a Raspberry Pi to try, you know, four different versions of FreeBSD and make sure they all boot properly without having to have someone go and switch the SD card every couple minutes. Right. But don't you still, in that case, need somebody at the Pi to select it when it boots? Well, no. So the it, it plugs in as an SD card, but then there's like basically another Raspberry Pi or whatever that's pretending to be the SD card. And you can program it remotely and like upload a whole bunch of images to it and then be able to switch it programmatically. So essentially, it's the same thing. You use a second Pi to make up for the first Pi's shortcomings. Yeah, in this case, it's just swapping out the storage instead of the keyboard and video. A wise man once said, quantity has a quality all its own. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or your feedback. You can find me at jrs.com slash mastodon. You can find me at jrs-s.net slash social. And I'm at alanjude. X.com. See you next week.